The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free. Because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now my guest on the podcast this week is a two-time Bathurst 1000 winner. In fact, he was the enforcer long before there was an enforcer. Alan Grice was in great form when I spoke to him recently. Now part one of the podcast, we talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk about his early days and how he got into motorsport. We talk about his time as a pastry cook. We talk about how he finally won Bathurst in 1986 on his 15th attempt at the great race. We talk about whether he loved the underdog tag. And speaking of dogs, we talk about his very famous Labrador, Sam Grice, who some of our older listeners might remember from the late 70s, early 80s. Our younger listeners definitely will learn something on this episode. Here we go. Buckle up. Time to start part one of Alan Grice on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Well, many people have asked, but we have finally got Alan Grice on the V8 Sleuth podcast. Grice, welcome. We've got so much to talk about, so much to cover. Uh, I think it's hard to know where to start, but I think we should start now. What are you doing with yourself these days? A lot of our fans who don't see you around the racetracks and stuff like that would love to know, what are you up to? What's keeping you busy? Oh, just the normal stuff, you know, helping old ladies across the road and re- uh, realigning their walking sticks and just stuff like that. Oh, it's very kind of you. Stuff I've done all my life, really. Really? Are you sure this is not turning over a new leaf and a new thing? This has been going on for a long time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, sunny day on the Gold Coast as we speak, I presume? Naturally. Yeah, I, I figure. We don't... Uh, we, we don't yeah, Except anything other than perfect days up here. <laughs> now we know why you moved there. Now we know. <laughs> exactly. Hey, there's so many topics to talk about. We've got so many questions from our uh, V8 Sleuth fans who listen to the podcast yep. religiously every week. We'll get to them a little bit later. Um, sure. One of the things, and you and I, I've been privileged over the, the journey of the last few years to spend a fair bit of time with you. We did some Shannon's Legends TV stuff. We've done some magazine stories and some yep. bits and pieces along the way. But I've never stopped to really ask you, what really got you started in racing? Was it your, were your family motorheads? Was no. was it just you on your own bat? How did you get into this mad caper of of going car racing? Well, after I left school, so you know I'm sort of eighteen or something. Um, I went to uh, a, a race at uh, Warwick Farm with a couple of mates from Maitland, which is you know three hours away, and. Uh, I just I was hooked that day. I said, you know, I'd never had a go kart or a cross country bike or anything like that. And uh, what I saw that day, I said on the way home to these blokes, uh, I'm going to do that. And I did. You did <laughs> for, for a very a long few time. Years, but right? there you go. <laughs> What was the um, the young A Grice? What, were you were you good at school? Were you a rat bag? Were you a, a loner? Were you everybody's mate? What sort of a what sort of a kid I, was was Alan Grice? I I played most sports. I, I could I could play sport. Um, you know, swimming, uh, springboard diving, uh, cricket. Uh, not cricket because um, I was swimming in the, in the summer sports, um, rugby league, and then I changed schools, rugby union. And uh, I was I was very much into sport, and I was good at most of them. Um, I when I when somebody stood over me with a gun, I was uh, I could pass exams, but <laughs> 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 I wasn't completely dumb. But I wasn't all uh, that keen on the schoolwork. Yeah, I've got to say. Yeah, fair enough. And so I guess a, a bit of that versatility in all those sports and things you're into that flowed through into your car racing because you were never afraid to try. Different types of cars, different categories, different opportunities, different countries. No, very true. Kind of a bit. Very of a, true. I guess that's where it started. Yeah, and I think um, you know a lot of the success I had was because uh, I could test, I could sort a car, and you know I had pretty good contracts with Bridgestone and then Yokohama, where they'd uh, they'd pay, pay me a retainer, and they'd put me on a plane and fly me to Mount Fuji or somewhere to test a new innovation. 
in, in their tyre development because I used to give them the best uh, feedback. You know, and they'd test you all the time. They'd, um, you know, they, they'd come in and they'd pull six pounds out of your front left or something. And you had to pick that up and come back in and say, I think that we've got a puncture in the front left. We've got less, you know. Mm. And they go, they look at each other and, and wink and nod and put six pounds in it. And, in fact, uh, there were times um, over the years when uh, with Bridgestone, more particularly, more so than Yokohama, but um, Brock, Peter Brock was also contracted to them. And they'd fly uh, two lots of tyres and two lots of technicians out to say Sydney and go to Amaru and then they'd uh, put a set of tyres on and they'd uh, tell you to go out and do, you know, six hard laps and bring it in hot, don't let the tyres cool. So you'd do that and they'd put a, a board, a clipboard in front of you as you sat in the car with your helmet and everything on and uh, you had to give uh, tyre performance or facets of tyre performance, uh, ten or nine or ten or six or none out of ten, so the first one would be turn in, you know, and it was turning in very, very good. You didn't have to t- turn your wheels very, your hands very much on the wheel. You know, you might give it an eight or a seven for turn in. Uh, but if it built it out of the corner sideways, your power down, you might give it a three. And uh, you, they'd give you these boards um, when you were hot and all the memories were fresh in your head. And while you're doing that, they take those tyres off and put another set on and send you out again to do six hot laps and bring it in hot. And then you'd give you the clipboard and, and, you know, instead of seven turn-in, this uh, uh, turn-in might have gone down to four or five. And so it goes. And the the, tech, the technicians would um, would be able to uh, parallel their thoughts on what the tyre should do because of the way they've designed it to the feedback that the driver is giving. And they'd sent two, as I said, two lots of technicians and two mountains of tyres for Brock to test one lot and me to test the other lot. And I found out later that they used to, um, they were all that cost of sent te- sending another set of people and tyres out. At the end of the day, they'd say, oh, thank you very much, Mr. Brock, and thank you, Mr. Grice. They'd screw all his comments up and throw them <laughs> in the tin. <laughs> but they had to do it because he was contracted to them. <laughs> That the motor can feel good, but that's the way it was, you know. And you, I didn't know at the time, and I wouldn't have complained if I did. Yeah, it's a it's a long list of stuff I wanted to, to get through with you, and we won't get to it all, but we'll do our very best, Gricey. But yeah, uh, yeah. As a young bloke, so I remember as a kid they used to and, and tell me the story about the they used to build you up as the pastry cook that went racing. Did they put a bit of extra sauce on that? Was it one of your jobs? Was it? Your job totally. How how far did they build that up on you? Well, in those days, you know, uh, you went into the family business. Uh, you didn't have a lot of <laughs> a lot of options. You didn't have a lot of choice. But in a way, it helped me because you know, in motor racing, you're always your own sponsor for quite a long time. Mm. And the fact that I was a tradesman in, as a pastry cook meant I could work at night and get a wage, get a tradesman's wage. And I could drive a, a, a dairy truck for um, oak butter factory for during the day and get a full man's wage. And the weekends I wasn't racing, I used to drive a cab for Ford's cabs in Maitland. So I was getting two and a half wages a week. And let me tell you, when you're working two and a half jobs, you haven't got time to have a glass of beer and fist it up against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and, and was, so I was the sponsor. Was doing all those jobs purely for the purpose of building the money bank up to go and buy a race car? Purely, yeah, and to pay 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 for the uh, the upkeep and the pay for mechanics to help you. In those days, you know, you only paid it, uh, the mechanics as they were a couple of mates. You just paid all their expenses and their accommodation and all that sort of stuff. It weren't actually paying them for the work they did. I don't know. It's obviously changed now, but. That uh, in those days, uh, you know, you were happy to have a couple of mates to help it. Mm. Well, it's changed just a little bit now. But what um, <laughs> what was your first road car? What was your first race car? First road car, well, first race car, was a MGTC that had already been modified with roll bars and uh, bigger wheels and stuff like that. It was a race car when I bought it, and I won uh, my first race in it. Uh, and rode it off in the second. <laughs> <laughs> Short race life. 
<laughs> where was where and was then, that at? Uh, where was that at? Oran uh, Park, Amaru, Oran Park, Oran Park. Park. Yep. Park. I wrote it off, and I, the club race I won was on the club circuit at Warwick Farm. Yep, yep. And then I bought, saved up, and bought an Elfin Clubman, which was you know a copy of a Lotus Super Seven. Raced that with some success, then went to a Formula Two Elfin Monocoque. And those times I was getting a bit of help from El- from Elfin, but only in, in um, you know, a better purchase price of the car, mm. probably at cost or something like that. Was the, Gary Cooper was a good guy. Was the aspiration, Gricey, at the time, I mean, because you did a bit of open wheeler, were you trying to go down the pathway of open wheeler racing or were you just going, I'll race anything, don't really care, whatever I can get my bum into and whatever's the next deal that I can afford? Yep, the, the latter. Yeah. It was whatever you could get your bum in, and you know, I mean, I even raced a raced a uh, Hillman Ip GT <laughs> <laughs> for a couple of races. There's, no, um, there's nothing you didn't have a go in. No, oh, and trucks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, trucks. It was colder. <laughs> Gee, oh, there's probably some stories there. What? Um, so in this time, I've asked a lot of people on this podcast too. Along the way, along the journey of, of a racing career, you do come across um, people who you just meet at the right time, whether it's someone who saw that you had a bit of talent and went, well, oh, I'll stick some money into that young fella or I'll, I'll give an opportunity yes. or a discount on a car or a deal on some tyres yes. or whatever it is. Who along the way, and I guess there's probably a few people in that those early years before yes. people really knew who you were, who were yep. those people who, if it wasn't for them, you might not have got to the next step and the, the step after that? Terry Marnie comes straight to mind. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But um, he was a young bloke uh, who with SAS steering wheels and seats mm-hmm. and other accessories, uh, SAAS, and um, he needed a figurehead. And he went to, uh, I think it was Brock, and couldn't afford him. And then he went to Moffat and couldn't afford him. And... Uh, uh, then he, I was next on the list for some reason. I don't think I, I was from a fame point of view at that point of time, but I was on the on the next one that he approached. And uh, he said, "How much?" He said that he'd been he approached the other two blokes to tell the truth, and that was him to a T to tell the truth. And uh, he said, um, "You know, uh, what uh, sort of retainer would you want to be the figurehead for our advertising?" And I said, well, mate, you're in a better position to quote numbers. How much can you afford? And he said how much it was. And I forget how much it was, honestly. Uh, And I said, uh, all right, but the company's growing, isn't it? He said, oh, yeah, it is growing, and it's going to grow more when I get a good figurehead and some more advertising going. So I said, all right, we'll we'll start off at what you can afford. And on the the, uh, understanding that as the – as the company, the profits improved, it said as the retainer. And he was, he said, right, out and deal. And he was true to his absolute word. Um, you know, I'd get a, I'd get a check every, every month. And uh, without talking or negotiating, uh, next month it'd be just slightly more. Mm. And the week after that, the month after that, it'd be slightly more. And uh, we got to a stage when I was, as often happens in motor racing, I was between teams or between major sponsorship or something. And I rang, my checks still kept coming in. I rang him and said, look, Terry, um, you know where I'm at. Uh, I've lost that sponsor or that ride or that backing. And I, don't, I can't tell you, sit here and tell you right now uh, exactly when I'll be in a car again. And he said, mate, we've got pretty friendly over the years, haven't I? Haven't we? And I said, oh, yeah, definitely. He said, well, well let me tell, tell you something. Mind your own bucket business. <laughs> <laughs> Here, take the money and shut up. Exactly, yeah. Well, don't ring me up and tell me this. Just be quiet. I know I know you'll get another car. I know you'll get another sponsor. I know you'll get back. I know you'll be on the track again. Just leave it to me. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry, Terry. <laughs> but, you know, but what a, what a great bloke. Yeah. You reminded me, too, that... It, wasn't and I was going to ask you about Sam the Labrador. Will, who works here yeah. with us at V8 Sleuth, wanted me to remind um, our listeners and some of the younger audience probably don't know this, but um, as a 
chocolate Labrador owner myself. I know you're a big yep. you're a big dog guy. Your, your young bloke Benny's got a, a little little dog. He's called Barry, who I see on Instagram, who is uh, being treated like a royal king of late. But uh, didn't Sam the Labrador, late seventies, early eighties, he was. He was at all the racetracks with you. He was in some of those SAS uh, photo shoots, and he was kind well, he of had a, he had his own past, yeah. didn't he? Well, he used yes, he did, and he used to um, he used to write a, 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 a what do you call it a, a um, column for the Sunday <laughs> Telegraph with a with a with a, a drawing of his head with a Craven Mile hat on at the top of the column, <laughs> and. <laughs> and uh, he was allowed into all of the racetracks because I mean, he was he was better behaved than the mechanics. <laughs> if you tell him to sit, tell him to sit out, he'd stay there all day. And uh, so a lot of other people started to bring their dogs into the pits. So Cam's blew up and said, "Okay, uh, reinforce the law that already exists with no dogs in the pits." So the promoters got together and got him a press pass. He used to clip onto his collar. <laughs> so it was Sam, Sam Grice, motoring journalist, because he used to write in a Sunday He wrote a column. He got yeah. cred. He got his credentials, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so Cam's just uh, smiled behind, behind their hand and, uh, and let it be known that uh, there'd be no, no complaints about uh, the – Journalists coming in to watch. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of the uh, the listeners who were probably following the sport really closely in the late seventies, early eighties will, will, will remember yeah. that. And he, if you look back through some of the old magazines, he pops up in lots of places, and there's articles. He and he was probably the most famous dog in Australian motor racing for a, a five or six or seven year period there. But uh, no doubt, what, yeah. happened, what, what yeah. happened to Sam? Did he did he grow to old age, or, or what happened with him? Oh, he did get to a good age, uh, but um, you know it's always a sad thing when dogs around eleven to thirteen seems to be bad years for them. But uh, a, a good, a good uh, big dog's better than most people, anyway. You know yeah, that. that's true. That's true. I, I'd agree <laughs> with that. Being a, I've never owned a dog till the last few years, but I now get it. I now get it as a dog. You now get it. The, yeah. this, the SAS connection was a was a good one there because I came across a photo the other day of you and I think it was in your Craven Mild era doing a, a photo yeah. shoot with a SAS steering wheel and there was Sam yeah. lurking in the background there getting in and uh, no doubt helping yeah. that photo get into the, the papers at the time as well. Supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long, shifting from day into dusk into darkness. Lights on, because in Sydney, we ignite the night. You don't want to miss this. Panasonic Air Conditioning, Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars, unforgettable. Um, we talked a bit about your, 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 you know, your early years and what got you in and how you got yourself up and rolling, but probably yeah. the, the one that um, you get asked about your Bathurst wins a lot, you get asked about the Craven Mile, the NASCAR stuff. We've got yeah. plenty of time to talk through some of that. Bathurst debut. Fiat, a Fiat. There's not too many blokes who've been Bathurst 1000 winners, in fact none, who made their debut in the great race in a Fiat. How did that come together? And I know it was with Bill Tucky, the late motoring journalist, but how did you end well, up with your, than that, your first Bathurst Well, deeper ride? than that, it, it was um, David Mackay obviously made a good quid out of it, uh, of running, preparing and managing and running the Fiat 124 Sport Coupe, give it its full name. Sounds exotic. Uh, yeah, Scuderi Veloce ran it for Fiat. And uh, David Mackay um, uh, had seen me in uh, Formula 2 Hilfer Mono and thought I could drive a bit. And uh, Bill Tucky would give it a lot of publicity. He was a, I think he was the editor of one of the magazines at that stage of the game and well known in motor, motor trade. And so that's how the two of us came together because Bill Tucky had given it some PR and I might have given it a bit of pace. <laughs> mm, mm. 1968. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Uh, is that your first time at Bathurst? Had you been there before in anything else or as a spectator? Mate, I had, had, hadn't even been there for a milkshake before. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to turn up in a Fiat 124 Sport. Wow. Yeah. 
they'd driven driven on the road from Sydney. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the days of the, the race cars driving to the race and from the race, something. Yeah, like and that. very often running an engine in on the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> different times, different times. Uh, yeah. It took a few years, though, for you to get back there, but the next time you were a reserve, in the Tirana you were – in '72, oh, yeah. you were you were lined up ready to. In those days, we should explain to the listeners that it's not like it is now, where you know you you enter, you turn up, you qualify your race. In those days, yeah. there were more entries than they could fit onto the track. You would, they'd say, right, oh, uh, this many cars from these classes are in, yep. and then in each yep. class there'd be a couple of reserves. So if anybody fell out, blew up an engine, yep. or uh, got sick, or whatever, your first one in the queue, ready to go in. But you still went and practiced, and you got time on the track yep. and you, you put together a time but I think you were like you qualified really well but you were a reserve and you were waiting on the race morning there uh in the dummy grid for a few cars to fall out and it didn't quite work your way and you missed out that's exactly right and um even the detail is finer is even sadder in that um I think the average we looked at it the average um a year they'd start approximately 15 uh, reserves because people didn't take a truckload of spares or spare cars or spare engines. You just took a car to Bathurst. And if the gearbox broke and you couldn't get a gearbox from the local dealer, it's all over over. So you're out and and, uh, there'd be people trying to rebuild engines all overnight and getting parts up from Sydney and they wouldn't make it. So there's another car out there. There's another reserve step forward. I think they used to start 60-odd cars and they'd take 15 or, or more reserves. And as I recall, um, we were probably 12th or 13th reserve, but we went there thinking that the average that started was number 15 reserve, so averages, we should get a start. And I think I qualified the car at the back end of the top 10 out of the 60-odd cars, and we were reserve 13th and they started reserve 12th and we were left at the the dummy uh, the gate into the dummy grid with, with a, sitting in the car with my helmet and my hat and my gloves on with a car that was <laughs> fast enough to run in the top 10 yeah just couldn't correct. get on the track couldn't we, get it on the track not long ago Gricey, we did a podcast about um Holden drivers at Bathurst, and I found, I find it really interesting because you drove Holdens for so many years, and I think the yeah. fans, and I, I know I do, identify you as a Holden driver because you just drove yeah. Tiranas and Commodores for for so many years. But it, it wasn't; it was just the best and only opportunity that you had for for equipment. So you don't deem yourself a, you know, when, when they do the list of Holden racing legends, um, yeah. you probably don't deem yourself that because you don't deem yourself a Holden guy. You just deemed yourself. Alan Grice, who will drive the best thing he can get his hands on. Would you agree with that? Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. That's 100% right. You know, I, I drove factory-supported Fords there. And I drove factory BMWs there. But I never – I only once drove a factory Holden. <laughs> that was with Wynn Percy in 90. <laughs> yeah. So for years you'd been the Craven Mild, Recar, Roadways, all that iteration, yep. privateer yep. guy, still in the you know Holden products and – yeah, but not the, the yeah all of those, but not the factory guy. So I think people with race drivers, particularly Australia, um, there's a lot of drivers that you go, yep, we'd identify him as a Holden driver, just the way the, the fans look at it. Or Ford, you know, Dick Johnson's Ford, Peter Brock's Holden, yep. Craig Lowndes. You could probably say he's a bit of both because he's been on both sides of the fence. But yeah, um, yeah, I just found it. A, it's a really interesting dynamic there where you get put in the red pile, but you probably don't deem yourself a, a red pile. Guy, it's just the way it worked out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Race cars was the thing. They they had a number on them, so they must have been good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, you, you. Um, what was with it with the number six? That became your your thing there for a long time. That was your identifiable number, and you'd a lot of drivers I've been, have the I've been the... asked that before, and I don't know. Really, really. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the star I was born under or anything like that. There's no good story. It's just a, a random I'm number. I'm afraid not. Oh. I wish there were. Well, my Mac went up. Ask me next. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll conjure up some good story that we can wheel out next year. But uh, uh, how did that uh, – I remember the Craven Mild, of course, different time now. Cigarette advertising is long gone, but uh, wasn't it a, a – oh, by, by the way, yeah. isn't, isn't it a nonsense when you see – uh, a, a red and white car 
or a white and gold car, uh, a photograph of it in a story that they're doing about, you know, some race in bloody 1980, and they have to blank out the uh, word Craven Mild or the word Marlborough. How ludicrous, you know, does a photograph of a car with a with a with a, a, a cigarette logo on it is that going to make some kid rush out and buy a packet of cigarettes? Well, where's the bloody common sense about with that? I think you'll get a lot of agreements from our our listeners, mate. Be particularly off the basis of uh, that Shannon's Legend series we did on Channel Seven, where Channel yeah. Seven are very very much careful with the cigarette act, and uh, we had to blur the vision of Craven Mild and Marlborough and. Absolute uh, nonsense. Camel filters and, and all that stuff over the years. But, it's, it's history. It's yeah, part of history. I agree totally. You know? I, look, I'm, I'm probably good proof. I'm 39. I've never been a yeah. smoker. I sat up and watched, and I grew up watching Australian motor racing, Marlborough, Peter Stuyvesant, yeah. Craven, oh, you know, all exactly. Peter Jackson, B&H, all of them. I've never smoked yeah. and I've never had an inclination to. So um, yeah. there you go. There you go. So, yeah, about, well, I've smoked and had plenty of inclination to, yeah. but I've given them up as well. <laughs> good, good, good man. How did that uh, Craven Mile thing start? Because that really sort of helped take you to the next level with your touring cars. Yeah, I, I happen to know that. <laughs> um, there was a guy called Paul Alder, Dr. Paul Alder, I think it was, and he lived next door to um, a man who shall remain nameless, who was a, a very senior executive at WD and HO Wills, and lived next door to him, and they were mates. And uh, he was started the, in the motor racing, and he said to his next door neighbour, um, "I'm buying this two double O two race car. Um, should get some sponsorship on it." And they said, "You're yeah, okay." So they put Craven Mile <coughs> sponsorship on it. And it was a 2002 BMW, you know, racing against um, V8s and all that sort of stuff. So its first race was at Amaru, and they sent out their motorsport manager, who was a bloke by the name of Phil May, uh, to watch uh, Paul Alder go around in the Craven Mild 2002. And in the same uh, on the same day, uh, the same weekend, I uh, was running a, a I think it was XU1. And uh, John Goss tipped me over, over the back of the circuit and uh, rolled over and brought it back into the pitch and there were half a dozen people out of the crowd surrounded, uh, descended on with my two mates who were mechanics, wailing away with hammers. And the last thing we did before we went out for the final was somebody ripped their belt off to tie the, the driver's side door to the pillar because all the locking mechanism was buggered. <laughs> So we got the belt on the on the driver's side door, and I drove out, took up the position on the grid, and won the final and beat beat Goss. And uh, uh, the Phil May went back and um, reporting back for the uh, racing at the weekend, and they said, "How did Paul Alder go?" And he said, "Never mind, buddy. Paul Alder, he started second last and finished last. This Grice bloke's the one. He's the one that he had the crowd. He had the crowd helping repair his car. He had the crowd going and berserk." We've got to get on to him. So they let it be known that I should approach them, which I did. And they, it took five minutes. I got some sponsorship. The best deal ever, five minutes. That's for a deal that ran for probably, what, five, six, seven years? Oh, well, more. Yeah. More. And then carried over to JPS because they owned that brand too. Yeah, same company, different brand, different colours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So was it at that point, it was it at that point, Gricey, that you considered yourself – a full-time professional racing driver? Did it allow you to, to be in that mould where that's all you did, that you could give away all the other jobs and just go car racing? Not, not straight away. Um, straight away, it. Uh, I still used to work in the in the family uh, business at night, uh, which would pay my bills, you know, so I could pay my rent and, and eat. Mm. And the sponsorship used to run the car and one mechanic. Yep. And then two mechanics and, you know, so it went on. And then you get, you know, it, it, it breeds. It becomes a tumbleweed because, you know, tyre companies want to be on cars that win. They're competitive. They're, in, they're on the television screen. So you start to get free tyres and you start to get paid to use tyres and you get paid to, to test tyres. You get better at that so you're worth more money. All that sort of stuff. But the ancillary stuff you've got to put, you've got to be pretty smart and put it together. 
We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and you might recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The $2 billion, yes, billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. It features eight triangular roof panels, or petals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each petal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each petal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over 7 minutes and open in just over 8 with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each petal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. Did you always want to run it as your own program sometimes I think a lot of guys who that was just the, the era of the sport that that happened but yeah did it, did it get to the point where you go no I like doing it this way because I'm in control and if I know what's going on with all the elements of my business and yeah I've got to find the money and I've got to get the blokes to work on the car and I've got to go and hammer on that door to find some more deals and do all the bits and pieces that a owner driver's got to do did you yeah. get to the point where you thought I've got to either step up or step down here, and but I'll go. I'll go my own way and keep doing it my way. Is that the way that you wanted to approach it? I think that you very often don't create your own destiny. There's a lot of card, the way cards fall, like the fact that the sponsorship manager went to Amaru on that day to watch Paul Alder, and uh, he he opened the door for me to come in and and present a prop, mm. and you know things happen uh, that you don't plan for and you've got to be ready to go with them, I think. You've got to be sort of pretty light on your feet. You've got to be a 5'8 rather than a forward. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to apply a, a football t- piece of terminology to, to motor racing for sure, for sure. What was what was the uh, what's the best deal you ever did? Don't give me the numbers or anything, but what, what was the best deal that you walked away from going, yep, that was a good one. Walking out of a boardroom one day, that was one that was well worth us coming to play today. I think it was in the first time that um, that uh, WD and HO Wills uh, agreed to the sponsorship that we had arrived at jointly, um, you know, for Craven Mile Days, uh, because that was very enduring. It went on and on, it went on and on, and and they were good people, you know. They they'd uh, often use you that they they'd had every couple of Fridays they'd have five o'clock drinks and they'd have, you know, other people that um, they'd invite along there and, and they'd bring their driver along, their Craven Mile driver along and they they used to use you um, as much as they could and that's what it's about. You know, if you think motor racing is anything more than uh, advertising and promotion, um, you're in the wrong sport mm. and you've got to go along with that and you've got to be good at it too, I guess. Oh, you've got to survive. That's the thing. Yeah, well, yeah. Not just being late, good under brakes. Yeah, that, that's part of it. You got to do that too. But you got to uh, yeah. you got to get the money to buy the brakes, and you got to get the money to get the guys Absolutely. to fix the brakes and work on the brakes and and, and all of the above. Uh, there's so much fondness that fans look back on the cars of that era the the L34 Tiranas, the A9X Tiranas, yeah. the Hardtop Falcons, those classic Aussie muscle car yeah. battles, yeah. and 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 the the guys who were doing the driving, you and Moffat and Brock and Dick and Bobby Morris and. Yep. So many of those guys. In reality, though, when it's the car that is the latest and greatest at the time, have you looked at some of those cars in more modern years and gone, oh, God, how did we do that? How did we drive these things? Because everything moves along and we always get a bit locked back in that whole rose-coloured glass thing. What, what, what were those things like to drive in that period at the time and have you driven one in the, the more modern years? Yeah, I did um, uh, some years ago now. But uh, for some reason, um, the sponsors at uh, 
was probably the ARDC at Bathurst. I'm going back some years. Um, they wanted to run some of the original sort of L34 type cars, and they wanted some people who raced them with some success to to drive them around to show the crowd, if you like. Now they were bloody awful. I forget which L34 it was, but I, oh Christ, how did you drive this? <laughs> and the thing is, too, that un, you know you'd be running so much uh, caster and, and so much camber that until you got the, that were going fast enough to get the car up on its toes, is the expression, uh, they were so bloody heavy. You know, at road speed, they were dreadful to steer. They were so heavy. You'd get an ache in the shoulder. But once you got through that and you went quick enough to get them up on and away from their cast and away from their camber, they were quite reasonable to drive. So... To drive them anything but flat out, they were horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and it's staggering to think that at the time it was just a uh, a device that now, yeah, uh, some years on, do. they're worth you know a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Where at the time you probably couldn't give one away when you're trying to yeah. get the next car and, and and go along. Mate, Bathurst eluded you for so many years. 15, yeah. 15 starts before you got the win with Graham Bailey in, in 86 in the Chickadee car. Yeah. Was it a case in all those close but not quite theirs, the 70s, the Tiranas, the, the early 80s in the Commodores, was it a case where you just didn't quite have enough manpower, money, luck, made some mistakes, didn't do things right? What, what do you put your finger on why some of those things didn't quite come through? When on paper they looked all right. Well, the... the um there were two reasons. Uh, one is that the advantage the factory teams had in those days was much more than the factory teams have today. That's because there's a lot more sponsorship, a lot more money, and the private teams can can hire engineers as good or better than the factory teams. But that wasn't the case. In, in those days, um, there was an enormous uh, advantage in in. That the factory teams had. I remember Harry Firth walking up to me in the pits at Warwick Farm one weekend and said, uh, and this was in the days of series production, and he walked up and he said, uh, here, Cock, uh, here's the latest camshaft. This is on Saturday morning. Like, he'd had that, he'd got, he'd done the, the, the grinds on the cam and been running it in uh, on dynos and changing valve timing and changing uh, exhaust lengths and diameters to suit it so he got the got the, the most out of the new camshaft which was series production which was supposed to be you know the new standard uh, uh, series production camshaft and he's given it to you on Saturday morning at Warwick Farm and he's been you know developing and testing it for three months I mean that's some bloody advantage <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit just a little bit oh. <laughs> and you know when the and they'd suddenly, you know, you'd get a, some front guards that had arrived that Harry's been using for two years, and they're, they were a thinner pressing. They'd, just, they'd stamp them in the fact that they'd wait for a weekend and they'd go in and stamp uh, fr- front guards for an XU1 or whatever it was um, over the weekend, and they'd, they'd get, you know, 12 or 15 sets of guards. Because uh, when it's the when the the tin is so thin, they're hard to repair, so they just throw them away. If they get a dent, they will whack another one on. Mm. You know all that sort of stuff. Um, well, the teams these days that they make their own bloody guards, so you know that there's no advantage in getting the the the, the thin pressings from the factory over a long weekend. Yeah, we're in a very different era. The the, the concept of or the the term Absolutely. factory yeah. team is is pretty much. You know, we're talking supercars here, obviously, but it's yeah, it's it's dead. Like it, it, yeah. you don't have. You know, there might be a, a badge and a sticker and some money being spent and some marketing budget, but there's yeah. that technical yeah. connectivity is is not there. So the as you said, the the advantage still comes from cubic dollars, but it doesn't so much come because there's a door open to a big factory somewhere. Uh, either in Campbellfield or, or down in um, Fisherman's Bend. So um, yeah, well, the, the 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 good the good private teams with the good finances, the good backing, might have better race engineers than, than the so-called factory team. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. I get the feeling too, Gricey, that you really um, grabbed the underdog privateer, I think the late, great Mike Raymond, who did so much for, for you and so yeah. many people, called you the prince of the privateers. But yeah. you you seem to 
and I know it w- would have grinded your gears that you were constantly up against dealer team and Firth and Brock and Bond and those blokes who had a bit of an advantage over you all the time in those areas. But I reckon yeah. you loved being the underdog to take it up to the establishment. You did it for years. Uh, did you relish that? Did you love to put almost the black hat on and be that guy and be the alternative viewpoint and be the other guy on the other side of the argument, whether it's on or off the track? Or I get the yeah, feeling well, you've got... always relished that. You've always loved it. I, I, um, I'll answer that in two ways. One is that um, you, when you know what advantage that the, 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 the factory team has, um, you always would like to be included in the factory team. You don't like to be asked, would you like to join? However, I'm sure that, as you are suggesting, um, I appreciated where I was coming from and I appreciated more the victories when they came my way because it was more me that did it. It wasn't Harry did this and Harry developed that, therefore I did this. Uh, or we got all these mechanics, they did that, and Dunlop did this and all that sort of stuff. So it, it does you, – you do claim more ownership of the win, the wins of the victories. Mm. And also, you know, the when you start getting into um, uh, t- developing tyres uh, that suit your package and you, uh, that's very satisfying too. I developed this tyre and I just won on this tyre and that's – you know, you you um, you get you get a great deal of satisfaction out of that sort of stuff. So I guess, therefore, that those things all come together, and you yes. could cook them together, and that's Bathurst nineteen eighty six. You drove most of the yes. laps. You, yes. Les, Les Small, who you worked with for many years, prepped that car. Graham Bailey, obviously, was his car, and he provided a, the sponsorship yep. and the backing to do it. You'd gone and done a bit of stuff in Europe earlier in the year. Well, you did a lot of stuff in Europe earlier that yep. year, but I guess then that's the ultimate expression of what we've just discussed where you, you, you didn't just get co-opted into a, you know, you didn't turn up with your your, your helmet bag and sign yep. up for the best team. And it's kind of like a football player who plays 10 years with a club that struggles, gets to the yep. free agency window now and then goes and signs for a contender and wins a flag the next year. It's kind of like yep. that where you went, no, 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 I've, I've done the graft, I'm doing it our way, and then you get the yep. reward. That was the ultimate that day where that formula, that strategy came together to give you the great result. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. And, it, it, you know, everything, everything was just right. The wind was coming from the right direction. The sun was out. <laughs> the tyres were good. The brakes were bulletproof. It was just, um, it was a day that was meant to be. Mm. What a, lot was, of hard, a lot of years of hard work went into it. Yeah, it wasn't a one-day wonder. It was 15 no. tries to get there. Yeah. Um, tell me too, mate, because Graham Bailey was the, the sponsor, uh, yeah. now the interesting part of that, that was the end of a piece of Bathurst history because I think from memory he did the one stint. It was, what, 20-something, 30 laps, something yeah. like that. You did 130 or thereabouts or something yeah. like that. I don't have the numbers in front of yes. me. And the rule yeah. came in after that where each driver had to do a minimum amount. So yes. uh, here's Correct. the question. If that rule had been in place and Graham had to do two stints, not one, would yeah, you, you reckon you still would have won. Would have been close. <laughs> mm. mm. Would have been I, close. I guess it's a big thing for him too because we've seen it over the years that the guy who pays the bills, he's got his company on the car, his name's on the window. He's yep. quite within his right to say, "No, no, no I'm paying the bills. I'll, I, I want to do my fair share. I want to drive the lion's share or whatever it is." Sure. But was that a case where he said, "Our best chance no. to win this race is letting you do most of the running"? Absolutely, and the you know when. Uh, when we were building a car to go to Europe, um, he, uh, he he was involved because he was getting a car built for Australia. And uh, he, he said, uh, how are you going to do it over there? <laughs> Who's going to drive with you? And I said, oh, I don't know. I haven't got to that. He said, all my bloody life, I've dreamt about going to Monza and places like that. He said, uh, how much would it cost me? <laughs> and that's where it started. All my life, I've wanted to, dro- to drive in Monza. And he did. So, And he did. He did. And and he was quick enough. He was he was not a number one driver, but he was quick enough and he was, he was uh, tidy. You know, he didn't. 
throw it off the road. I'd be more likely to throw it off the road. He went in a few sand traps, but that happens. I've been in them myself. Yeah. <laughs> it means you're not trying hard enough if you don't find a few of them along the way. <laughs> How satisfying was, was that win in 86? I, I think the fans out there have got a deep love for that win because it was at a time when the turbo cars, the Volvos, the Nissans, Group A were starting to, to, to really rise and the Commodore was under threat by all these invaders, yet at that place in that race, if you're in a Commodore, you still had a, a pretty big sniff to be able to win it. You're talking about 90? Oh, 86, probably more so beforehand. But 90 yeah, most well, certainly was the case. Not, most certainly was the case, yeah, because um, those turbos, you know, we, we, um, we knew they had two, two weaknesses. One was uh, a pace car because they'd overheat behind a pace car because they, they relied so much on, the, on a rush of air through the, through the radiator. It was just the way they were built and set up. You know, you could you could change the radiator and change the water pumps and and, and make them so that they drive for twenty twenty k's for, for for a fortnight. But to race them, that's what they used to do. They used to overheat the turbos behind pace car. And similarly, um, they didn't like a long time in in second gear going up mountain straight, a longer time in third gear going up mountain straight, and a longer, longer, longer time in fourth gear going up mountain straight. And they'd just sit there wide open, just building heat. So we figured if we could, because uh, we knew they were, they'd turn the go, they'd do a sprint and then they'd turn the turbos back. We knew if we could, keep, we could run hard enough that uh, they would, uh, they'd, there's every chance they'd overheat, and they did, one at a time, fourth, fourth, fourth. So, you know, it was a, a much of, uh, as much a, a blow-em-up win as it was a, a, just a straight-out pace win. Mm. And the great irony, too, that uh, HRT, as it had become, uh, when Percy was running it on behalf of Tom Walkinshaw, but Tom, yeah. Tom wasn't a fan of Grice. He didn't want you in the car. No. He had other ideas on who he wanted to drive, but... Win yeah. stood strong and said, "No, I, I want Gricey." And I think yeah. Tom's words were, "On your head, so be it." And that's so correct. be it. It worked. Yeah. It did. Yeah. No, that's exactly true. Win actually said to him, <coughs> "Tom, you hired me to to manage the team. Now let me manage the team." Huh. There you go. So be it. on your on your on. So be it. And wasn't it that you and Walkinshaw had had some run-ins back when you were racing in Europe? There was a particular yeah. round late in the year, that European year that you did, that I think that's where you flicked the switch on Tom not being a fan of, of you. Wasn't it that you – was there a bit of pressure on you to do something that you didn't want to do from my yes. memory? Well, what was that? Tell yeah. our listeners. I forget his name now, but his um, team manager, Blake, chief mechanic, came up to me in the pits at Estoril, I think it was one of those, I think it was Estoril, and uh, uh, said that, that uh, if I, what were we talking, the Volvos? No, I think it was BMWs. Rovers. They, were, they were in the Rovers at that stage. Yeah, yeah, but I think it was they were being challenged by the BMWs. For, I think the, the, for the championship, yeah. Yes, for the championship, for the European Touring Car Championship. And he came up and suggested that if uh, if I was to have uh, one of the two of them off, that uh, I'd have a couple of uh, you know business class tickets back to Australia to use whenever I wanted. And uh, I said, uh, "Will you go back and tell Tom that if that's the way he wants to go motor racing, don't ever fucking talk to me about it again? Or so I'll smack you in the nose and I'll smack him in the nose too." And uh, he didn't like me after that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! And, and, yeah, and, and how you actually I... do that, you know. I mean, for Christ's sake, the European Touring Car Championship—it's the most principled, he's reckoned, uh, touring car championship in the world. And they want want to <laughs> Jesus. What, what was I mean, some of the, what was some of the rule stretching that was going on? Some of the stuff that you turned up there and saw and thought, "Hang on a minute, there's a few players oh, yeah. playing not with a straight bat here." Yeah, yeah. Well, even when they came out for Bathurst, you couldn't move a, you couldn't put a front wheel and tire on, you couldn't use one wheel and tire on the on the first four or five Sierras. They were all different, mm. different offsets, different 
just bullshit. <laughs> I, I do love how uh, some of the fans these days get rolled up about how the parody and the the technical discussions relating to supercars. We should go back to Group A because it was so much better. And you go, clearly you weren't around in that era to know some of the stuff that was going on in the bun fights and the, the technical and dramas. The track, and they even, 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 they cut a bloody turret down the, right down the middle with a bloody great chainsaw and put about six or eight inches in the middle of it. And the track would be six inches wider front and rear. Figure that out. It's hard everybody's, to get right, everybody's measuring the guard, saying, oh, they're widening the guards to get more track. They've widened the fucking body. <laughs> <laughs> they've cut a hole through the turret. <laughs> Alan Grice in really good form on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken. That's part one done. Don't fret, there's still part two, and there's plenty of great topics to cover. We talk about NASCAR racing and crashing NASCARs as well. We talk about racing at the Le Mans 24-hour with Gricey, his time in Queensland politics, uh, in ute racing, and we also throw at him the National Motor Racing Museum, Couch Racer Questions, and the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Quick one too, if you're struggling for a gift idea for Christmas, grab a V8 Sleuth gift card. Jump on our website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au, grab a gift card for someone special for Christmas and make it their problem. What they buy, whether it's a book, a print, a DVD, a poster, a magazine, jump on our online store now and, of course, you'll get that sent straight out to you. You don't need to worry about waiting for presents to arrive through Australia Post. Jump on the website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Subscribe to our newsletter through our regular website, v8sleuth.com.au. Follow us on socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're always up to something there. In the meantime, though, that's episode part one of Alan Grice done on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timkin. Click along and make sure you listen to part two. The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free. Because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek.